Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Hello, this is Pat Odie-Murray. I am filling in for Al today. He's dealing with some other business for Ave Maria Radio. It's great to be back with you again. I subbed uh, at the end of January. It was so much fun, so I was blessed that they asked me to come back. Um, and I just want to let you know about this hour. we got great stuff going on. Auguste Mayrod is going to be here to talk about how colleges have made themselves useless. Um, and Brad Wilcox will be in in the second segment on why you should get married. And then Phil Campbell will round out our hour, and he's going to be talking with us about Catholic guilt is not a thing. So these are great uh, discussions we're going to have, and I hope you'll join us. But first, we have the news with Steve Clark. Thanks, Pat. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, February 16th. It's the Feast of St. Juliana of Nicomedia. Today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. Donald Trump is being handed a serious blow in his civil fraud case. A New York judge this afternoon ordered Trump and his companies to pay a penalty of more than $350 million after the president was found liable of inflating his assets to get favorable loans from banks. The judge banning Trump from doing business in New York for three years, prohibiting his sons from doing business in the state for two years. Trump is expected to appeal the decision. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is dead. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the U.S. will be in contact with other countries regarding his death. Russia is responsible for this. We'll be talking to many other countries concerned about Alexei Navalny, uh, especially if these reports bear out to be true. The U.S. State Department considered Navalny a political prisoner. The 47-year-old was serving a combined 30-year sentence for extremism, fraud, and embezzlement. Navalny was one of the last vocal high-profile critics of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Two juveniles are facing charges in the mass shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl victory parade. The shooting this week left one person dead and 22 others injured. Police say the suspects are being held at a juvenile detention center on gun-related and resisting arrest charges. Economists are warning of persistent inflation after January's wholesale prices rose more than expected. The Labor Department reporting that the producer price index increased three-tenths of a percent after a slight decline in December. The PPI measures the prices producers pay for goods and services. Stocks were lower on the news, with the S&P 500 down nearly a half percent. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Hello, and welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Pat Odie-Murray. I'm filling in for Al today. And um, the last time I was here, uh, we were um, we were supposed to have a goose on. There was a little confusion. Um, but uh, Goose Mayrot is our guest in this uh, first segment. He's the senior editor 
for Everyman Commentary. He's an English teacher in Dallas, and he writes for The Federalist, The American Thinker, and other publications. And you can visit uh, the website, everymancommentary.com. That's everymancommentary.com. Welcome, Auguste. Hello. It's so good to hear from you. How you doing? I'm doing well, Pat. Thanks uh, for calling me up. Hey, no problem. I, you know, every time I read one of your articles, a goose, I thought, yep, this is so a goose. <laughs> I love this. Um, because the title alone, How Colleges Have Made Themselves Useless, it really drew, drew my eye being a college professor. So uh, tell me... Because um, this was, and we kind of talked about it the last time I was on the show, um, just some of the, the highlights of this article. But, you know, you kind of said you really kind of think academia is past the point of recovery. So, first of all, tell us what you see the problem being and why do you think it's past the point of recovery? Well, so the title comes from an Atlantic article that came out at that time, too, which was like college has college become useless Mm -hmm. and it was written by a professor who was arguing that you know colleges have to respond to economic pressures Mm -hmm. uh try to draw in students and uh administrators tend to you know want uh more flashy stuff and like i guess people in the humanities have to appeal to students by taking on a lot of social justice narratives and themes uh and incorporating that into their classes I mean, I saw all that, and as a former humanities student, or maybe a lifelong humanities student, yeah. uh, I mean, I, I couldn't accept that. I said, well, no, um, sure. The, so I think it's important to understand he's right to say the social justice stuff is a gimmick. Mm-hmm. It is a way to draw in students. It's a way to give you know prestige or clout to these disciplines in the humanities. Okay. Um, because there's a lot of insecurity. It's like, oh, well, what we study, what we do is not useful. Uh-huh. Uh, and, of course, I, re- I refuse all that. Right. Um, and in my experience, that kind of thing, I don't know, you might have true believers, people who really believe in these causes and really believe that the Western canon is evil and that we need to diversify our writers and that we need to gear all argumentation and thought to social justice causes of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for the most part, probably the majority of people, I mean, it's a gimmick, and I think kids tend to gravitate towards it because it's easy. Right. Uh, and so that was kind of my main criticism was that, well, you know, I remember when this change was happening when I went to undergrad, and that was in around 2002 to 2006, uh, and I think it's gotten a lot worse since then. But mm-hmm. I just remember you had a lot of these kind of poppy classes mm-hmm. uh to really appeal to kids and, well, young adults. And, I mean, I don't know if it really indoctrinated kids to become Marxists, but I do know it was easy easy stuff. I mean, right. you didn't have to read too much. You didn't have to write too much. Right. And so that's kind of my conclusion. It's like, well, okay, I mean, if this is what constitutes a humanities education, then, well, yeah, it's useless. Um, it's not really going to help you grow as a thinker, and it's not really going to equip you with tools of writing and thinking and critical analysis and all that good stuff. 
uh, it really is just kind of, you know, high school part two, and it's pretty shallow stuff. Well, August, do you think that, um, because, and I'm, I can't, I didn't look statistics nationwide, so I can't, t- I can't tell you this, but I do know um, in, you know, like I'm from Ohio, and in certain colleges, numbers are certainly falling. It seems like less kids are choosing college. Um, do you think that, that, change in numbers when colleges are struggling is that going to push them more toward entertainment experiential things or do you think that will bring them back to almost a classical approach to education so i'm optimistic i think it'll be the latter do you uh i mean yeah i do i mean what because you're you're right to frame the issue that way let fewer kids are enrolling to college uh, a lot of that just has to do with demographics. It's just a smaller yeah. class of kids overall. Right. It's not necessarily, you know, market forces or whatever. Right. So I really do think, and that's kind of what I mentioned at the end of my article, is that I think schools that adopt a model that is useful and genuine and authentic, like I see these Catholic colleges kind of develop like a humanities with a vocation. Right. And to me, that's the ideal. It's like, okay, we, we do want to train you for the job world, but we do want to train your mind to be a liberal, educated citizen. Right. Um, and a Catholic, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but no, and I think that's, and that's very popular. I mean, these schools that have kind of pioneered this, this model are doing pretty well. And I think, you know, other colleges that have just kind of, um, you know, gorge themselves mm-hmm. on these gimmicks and stuff. I mean, you can't take for granted that kids are just going to go to college. Now they go to college for a reason. Yeah, That's the one thing Gen Z has over millennials. So I'm a millennial, I'm 38, mm-hmm. and I remember when I grew up, you know, everybody was kind of shoved into college. Now, with the students I teach who are all kind of college-bound, um, they're a lot more circumspect about it. They're a lot more practical and pragmatic about it. They'll really? do community college. They'll do vocational programs. Yeah, I mean, it's great. Yeah, it is. Um, so, I mean, and a lot of them, I think, just, I think they want to have that liberal arts education, the humanities background, but they don't want, they don't want the fluff anymore. Um, right. They're just paying too much money and life is short. And, yeah. You know, I, I think they, they kind of are understanding the landscape and the parents, I think, who are Gen X. I mean, I had boomer parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had Gen X parents, uh, I think, are a little bit more um, clear-eyed about, you know, what they need to get out of their college education so that they're not just kind of wasting money and wasting four years. Okay. But, but Goose, I have a question. Because, and, and Harper, um, you mentioned him, he, Tyler Harper, he's the guy that wrote the article for The Atlantic. Um, and and he, he talks about the humanities have always suffered from the popular notion that they're useless and won't lead to a lucrative career. And I must admit, um, you know, when I went to college, I kind of thought that. Why do I have to take this? Why do I have to take that? Because we really didn't have a good understanding of what it meant to have a well-rounded education. We kind of had this, I I, I only want that skill right there. You know, I want to uh-huh. be, you know, I want to be a nurse. So just give me all the stuff that I need for nursing and don't tell me about, you know, English or the great books or, you know, that kind of stuff. So how do we, has that started to change or how do we change that so people really understand what it means to be an educated person? I think it's changing. Um, like, like you said, we're going back to a classical model. Uh, I think a lot of the, you know, these newer development, well, they're not new now, but mm-hmm. I mean, for the 20th century and early 21st century, 
I think colleges are based on, you know, science, making everything sciences mm-hmm. uh, so that they could look more legitimate and they could do research in these areas, uh, which was always an awkward fit. Um, and so everything became studies, right? Like right. You, you didn't have English or literature, it was, uh, you know, literary studies. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't politics, it was political science. Right. Um, and, and I think, you know, I mean, it's a gimmick at the end, at the end of that, you know, I mean, so I think uh, a lot of colleges who want to retain their liberal arts identity, who want to kind of retain their humanities programs, are going for that well-rounded, whole holistic approach. Uh, and to me, that's kind of what I'm seeing with the, those Catholic vocational schools, right. like universities, that really are just saying, okay, look, here's your prerequisite required, you know, learning to have a true liberal arts experience. But, you know, as far as work and career stuff goes, we're going to have something for that, and we're going to keep these things kind of intact. Right. I think colleges have done this weird, confusing mess of mixing the two and trying to make this uh, useful and and more marketable. But in the end, it just compromised the, uh, well, just the rigor and I think even just the usefulness of it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, would, I, was, I would argue that politics, philosophy – these things, as they were traditionally understood, that was more useful and more rigorous and would make you a much more capable person than oh. literary studies where you're gleaning just maybe one particular genre at one particular time, and it just seems kind of random. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, I, I've noticed that, too, in the sense that when you talk about um, the idea of, of certain things to study, you know, that we don't always again, it has that kind of utilitarian feel to it, you know, that all those other things are just fluff, even though they're not really fluff. And, and like, it, you know, I always thought, why aren't we teaching logic in colleges anymore? You know, systematic ways of thinking things through, you know, I do it in my bioethics class, but, you know, and my students kind of look at me <laughs> and I'm thinking there was a time students had to take that, you know, and they don't have to do that anymore. Um, it, well, and, and I'll, I'll say something to that, you know, okay. uh, is that because here I work with high school students. Yes. And when they ask me, what am I going to use this for? Or how is this going to get me a job? Mm-hmm. You know what I ask? I tell them, I'm like, how is marching band going to get you a job? <laughs> okay. Or how is dance? Or how is cheerleading? Or how is anything that they spend time on going right. to get them anywhere? Yeah. Right? That's a good point. And, well, but the reason they do those things is because they get good at something. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to make the same approach to, you know, the core disciplines of the humanities. Make them good at it. Make your class rigorous. Make it hard. Mm-hmm. Make them write a ton. Make them read a ton. Make them sweat it out. Yep. They will complain at first, and they might say they're not going to take it. But when they see just how much they can grow and how good and capable they are, and that extends to like other you know areas of life. Mm-hmm. Then it's become a it becomes a lot more appealing. You you go in for the rigor. You like you know it's like joining the Marines or something, or joining <laughs> the pro team. You know you don't do it because it's useful. You do it because you want to be good. You want to be excellent. Arete, right? Right. So mm-hmm. I mean I, I think that's the argument these humanities teacher professors and departments need to make is that we're going to make you good, right? Uh, and it's going to be hard. 
and you're not going to like it at first, but you're going to like it later when you can actually do stuff. Well, Auguste, do you, because you kind of say you think that's been one of the big issues with colleges is that um, things have just been so, become so meaty, you know, it's mediocrity, you know, and it's so, you know, fluffy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And do you think that's that is the problem with humanities? I do. I think that's the major weakness. It's not that it's useless. Uh, I wouldn't even say it's it's you know filled with progressive indoctrination. In a lot of cases, it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just say, in too many cases, I think compromises and accommodations have been made to such an extent that the classes don't even feel like classes anymore. Right. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's too easy. You're, you're not reading serious stuff. You're not having serious conversations and, you know, maturity is being stunted just by sitting there and you're paying thousands of dollars for the privilege. So, I mean, I, I think this could all really be reversed if, you know, there was just the courage on the part of, you know, curriculum writers and professors and teachers and instructors and departments and presidents. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if they were all willing, you know, to just kind of say, okay, well, let's, I mean, you could call it traditional or whatever. Mm-hmm. I would say, let's, let's hold the kids accountable. Let's hold ourselves accountable. Let's do the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not bother too much of politics. I mean, again, you can diversify your writers and your canon. Sure. I don't think there's any issue with that. Right. I think it's just, let's do this, but not at the cost of, you know, compromising the rigor and, you know, the skills involved in these disciplines. Right. The ability to think it through. Well, just a few seconds left, Auguste. So you kind of think you could fix this by integrating humanities and not necessarily having humanities majors. Did I understand that right? Sure. Uh, They just make it a, a holistic educational experience. And then, you know, you can add your vocational program just to make sure the kids get jobs. So it, it's the way it used to be. Yeah. And and and, <laughs> and and I think then humanities, you know, realize, do you think it's an ego thing? We got to have our own degree. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, that, that, all that stuff is all about fads. Yeah. Come and go. Yeah. Well, Goose, thanks for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh. We've been talking to Auguste Mayrod. He wrote an article in response um, called, How Colleges Have Made Themselves Useless. You're listening to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Pat Odie-Murray, subbing in for Al. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. So many people call themselves Christian, call themselves Catholic, call themselves Evangelical, whatever, and they're nothing more than members of the Church of what's happening now, as Slip Wilson used to say. You want direction, you want guidance, go to the source. Go to Jesus, go to Scripture, go to the Church teachings. Not to Whoopi Goldberg, not to, and we pray for her, but Nancy Pelosi's version of Catholicism or Joe Biden's version of Catholicism or any other politician that holds fast to their quote-unquote Catholic faith, yet consistently, consistently and blatantly, not just speaks against the church, but acts against the church. We need to pray for these people, and we need to encourage bishops to stand up for the truth and not be afraid. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Is it impossible to live Jesus Christ's command that the marriage bond be indissoluble? No, says the Catholic Catechism. The Lord has not placed too heavy a burden on the shoulders of a married couple. 
By coming to restore the order of creation disturbed by sin, Christ himself gives the strength and grace to live marriage in the new dimension of the reign of God. By following Christ, renouncing themselves, and taking up their crosses, spouses will be able to receive the original meaning of marriage and live it with the help of Christ. St. Paul, in a letter to the Ephesians, emphasizes this when he admonishes men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. For this reason, Paul says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844 398 9399. That's 844 398 9399. Hello, and welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm setting in for Al. He's doing some other business for Ave Maria today. I'm Pat Odie Murray. And uh, our next guest um, is Brad Wilcox. He is a professor and director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, Future of Freedom Fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His newest book is Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. Welcome, Brad. Great to be here, Pat. I, you know, um, I'm sorry, I haven't read your book, and I usually love to read the books of people I'm going to talk to, but I I did read some of your articles, um, The Awfulness of Elite Hypocrisy on Marriage, a couple like that, Why You Should Get Married. Um, I'm just... I'm amazed at the statistics. I mean, I'm amazed at the statistics, but not really. I used to teach a Christian marriage course, and I use stuff from the National Marriage Project all the time. 
So tell me, what is the disconnect here? And give the audience a little bit of background. Sure, it's important to note kind of the disconnect so people kind of get a sense of where we stand. And it's it's sobering. So on the cultural front, a colleague of mine did a survey recently and found that a majority of younger women think that there is no benefit to marriage and motherhood. Oh, wow. um, emotionally, you know, and <clears throat> we're seeing too when it comes to the marriage rates come down about 65% since 1970. Um, so on both kind of like the sort of the behavior and the beliefs, we're, we're not doing great on the marriage front. And the great irony, though, is that my book basically shows that there's no group of men and women who are uh, less lonely, reporting more meaningful lives or happier than married uh, women and married men in America today. And for instance, they're both about twice as likely to be very happy with their lives compared to, um, you know, single and childless peers. So we've got a kind of, I think, uh, uh, a challenge in communicating the value um, of this most important institution to our young adults, especially before us. Well, where do you think this, where does the, where do these beliefs come from? That, you know, that women think, oh, you know, is is it, is it, has the feminist movement betrayed them? Has the world given them all these ideas? And I mean, where does this all come from? Because according to you, they're, they're, they're coming from stable families, right? I mean, in college anyway. Yeah, in college, that's definitely true. I mean, most of the students that I teach are coming from intact married families. Yes, I think um, part of the problem is that there's a kind of Midas mindset out there. Um, and I mean by that, that we're sort of stressing the importance of, you know, education and money and building mm-hmm. your own brand and, you know, yeah. a great career. And so people kind of lose sight of the importance of marriage and family relative to, you know, all of that more career oriented <clears throat> activity. And, and I think the culture kind of glamorizes work. Um, I mean, you know, the Chicago PD MDs, you know, series on NBC is kind of basically depicts a lot of 20 somethings who are completely invested, you know, as police officers, doctors, nurses, et cetera, mm-hmm. in their work, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of in most cases, marriage is sidelined. So that's just one example of the way in which our culture and our pop culture is sort of emphasizing work as the be all and end all and, and de-emphasizing the importance of marriage. Now, there's also obviously a, a problem and a challenge that there are plenty of adults who are coming from non-intact or, you know, dysfunctional families or marriages where their mom and dad weren't particularly happy. Right. And so that also, I think, you know, reduces people's interest in this. But I think just a lot of the forces in the broader culture um, are running against marriage. And then, of course, we're a more secular society as well. Right. And you, you talk about, I love this phrase, I never heard it before, people that talk left but walk right. <laughs> yes. And that's, I mean, a, a big deal with, you know, with a marriage. I talk in... Um, in the book about Reed Hastings, who is the co-founder of Netflix. And just mentioned, you know, a lot of shows on Netflix are not particularly family-friendly. And then there's this big movie they did called The Marriage Story that painted a very, you know, bad, dystopian, dispiriting picture of uh, marriage among elites, moving from New York to L.A. and getting divorced in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, Reed is, you know, in his autobiography, mentions that he and his wife had some troubles when he was traveling too much, you know, Mm -hmm. for his work. Right, but they met with a counselor, worked through it, and have been. It looks like you know happily married for more than thirty years, two kids. So you've got this Hollywood mogul is kind of basically presiding over a talk left kind of um, streaming network, even while he's kind of 
living a very, um, you know, basically right-leaning, marriage-minded life in private. Yeah. And, you know, and this is one of the things, too, I notice uh, with students that that I teach, especially when I was doing the marriage class. You know, the whole idea of, and even when you talk about, uh, because I do moral theology, when you talk about poverty and things like that, you know, our answer to everything is kind of, let's, we we just need to throw more money at it, throw more money at it. You know, Uh, we need to give people more money. Uh, and and it's like, well, it, but there are ways to have successful lives, and and you point that out so well here. Yeah, what a lot of young adults don't realize is that if you do just three things, your odds of being poor are just three percent, and your odds of being the middle class or higher are eighty six percent. And those three things are at least graduate from high school, work full time in your twenties, and get married before you have any children. Um, so it just kind of tells us that. You know, education, work, and marriage are the foundations of the American dream financially. And if we could get people to kind of realize the importance of marriage, especially, I think, and then also having our younger men be more intentional about their high school and work in their 20s or or college, if that's what their path is, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the problems that we're talking about, you know, today on this show would be... um, you know, would be minimized. Yeah. And I th- don't you call that what the success sequence? Is that what you call that? That's the success sequence. Yeah. Having, you know, that's those three steps, education, work and marriage um, are the three steps people can take to maximize their odds of realizing the American dream financially. Right. So do, is it that? So what is the divorce right now? Because, I mean, you know, everybody always makes yeah, so it it's, sound it's like it's 80 percent. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Because, yeah. so, um, you know, obviously until you die, you know, right. um, you know, God forbid I get divorced, but like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a chance, right? So, right. Um, so um, but we're projecting right now around 40% um, for people who are getting married, you know, mm-hmm. around now and recently married. Um, and it was probably close to one and two um, back in the 1970s and mm-hmm. early 80s. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of where that statistic comes from. But we have seen the divorce rate come down, um, you know, since 1980. And so that just means that most marriages will go the distance today. Yeah. So it, when you talk about the idea of this, um, you know, leaning left but walking right, are is that part of what causes that disconnect? What causes things like, you know, some of the examples you gave where, you know, um, they people say, well, personally, I believe this is, you know, I'm going to live this way. And it's kind of that success sequence you're talking about. But I'm never going to say that other ways of living, like if people want to cohabitate or want to do this or that, I, I'm never going to say that's a, not a good way to go. Uh, what's at the heart right, of that? Yeah. I think on the one hand, I think why people who are in kind of the more of the elite class tend to get married and stay married is that they tend to have virtues related to, you know, prudence and um, hard work and like <clears throat> good social skills that mm-hmm. allow them to forge, you know, reasonably good marriage. And they tend to recognize that some level, either explicitly or implicitly, the best thing for them and their kids is to, you know, get married and stay together. The right. best going to, you know, keep their kids in the right schools, you know, able to keep their house, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. they're going to retire with decent level of wealth. But why do they talk less then, you know, given that they're walking right oftentimes, and I think it's because there are just so many cultural currents out there mm-hmm. that are pushing in the direction of individualism, that are pushing in the direction of 
secularism that are pushing in the direction of kind of just having a more progressive approach to, yeah. you know, life in general. So that whenever some kind of new cultural, you know, norm comes down the pike, whether it's no-fault divorce in the 70s or mm-hmm. polyamory now, mm-hmm. you know, their, their temptation is just to kind of accept it, to baptize it as right and good and a mark of, you know, what <clears throat> yeah. all good-thinking people would would embrace. Um, so I think that's part of the dynamic. And then, too, we just, as a country, are very uh, inclined to embrace an ethic of, you know, freedom and choice yeah. in every domain, including, you know, how you organize your family. Right. But, of course, the challenge here is that we know that <clears throat> um, there are certain values and virtues mm-hmm. that correspond to a good life and a good marriage, a good family. And so people who are, you know, stressing, for instance, importance of fidelity, I find in my book are significantly happier in their marriages, not surprisingly, and yeah. they're also less likely to divorce too. So, same thing that would go for something like a joint checking account versus a single, I mean, separate accounts for a couple. People who embrace a we before me approach to their money, with, for instance, joint checking accounts, uh-huh. are more likely to be happily married and stably married. Right. Um, going to church reduces your risk of divorce between thirty and fifty percent. Wow. So there's just. A lot of these sort of classic institutions like the church and norms like fidelity that have real staying power, but unfortunately have been taking a lot of fire from the folks who are controlling our, um, you know, our media, our pop culture, our schools. Yeah, because I, you know, you talk about that success sequence and I'm thinking, yeah, this is what the church has like taught forever. You know, sure. in the sense of, you know, don't have children out of wedlock, get married. I mean, you know, it, it, and, 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 you know, that was kind of, well, you guys are being gentlemental and they poo poo you, you know, like, uh, you know, and, and it's like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out this is, this is what helps people in their lives. So, right. So we have to sort of basically rediscover what, you know, our grandparents would have taken to be commonsensical in, in important ways. But also to kind of recognize, I mean, it's not, I don't want to kind of basically say that everything back in 1955 was perfect and yeah. everything now is terrible. I mean, one right. thing that's good and mentioned in my book is just that we expect men to do a lot more <clears throat> when it comes to the family. And one of the strongest predictors of women's marital happiness is a husband who is emotionally engaged in the marriage, but also kind of takes on a substantial role and you know, caring for and raising the kids. Right. Yeah. And that has been a big change. And and like right. you said, it's it's a positive change in families. And it's it's right. good for kids to see that, too. It gives them that sense of balance in their own life. So it, it, we're coming up on the end here. So uh, it, what would, you know, you, you said get married. What's the thing that um, advice you give young people today? Well, I, the thing that I kind of would basically stress to young adults is that there is nothing that's going to give you as much meaning, um, nothing that's going to kind of give you a sense of, you know, solidarity with someone else, and uh, nothing that's going to give you as much happiness as, you know, making a gift of yourself to your spouse and to any kids that you have. Thanks so much, Brad, for being with us. I could talk to you forever. Wonderful research. Our guest was Brad Wilcox, um, and we were talking about um, his uh, some of his latest articles on marriage. You're listening to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm subbing for Al, Pat Odie Murray. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. 
Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. My wife Janet's ancestors arrived in America on the Mayflower, but we never knew that the Catholic missionaries arrived in Florida 50 years earlier. Visit the site where the cross was first planted, where Mass was celebrated, and the first Marian shrine in the New World. Renew baptismal vows in the cathedral in its first baptismal font. Hope you can join us in La Florida, the land of flowers. To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. This commandment enjoins on us young children not only obedience to their parents and even older children, great honor for them, but also gratitude for all of our elders, teachers, employers, and leaders. It also directs citizens to a proper love of our country. So it's a rich commandment. And it also puts great requirements on those who are in those positions to be worthy of the honor that is due them. This commandment is fundamentally given to us by God because without respect for our elders, there can be no teaching. And we cannot hand on the wisdom of previous generations. This commandment is rich and it is for us. The fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. John, chapter 8, verse 51. Jesus is in a discussion with some of the leaders of the Jews. They're talking about Abraham. Abraham lived 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. So in the course of the discussion, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He says that often in the Gospels. He who keeps my word or believes in me will never die. To which the Jews say, Now we know you have a demon. And they say, Abraham died, as did the prophets. All the patriarchs, the great men and women of the history of Israel. All these people died, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets, who died? Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. To which the Jews say, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am.
Hello, and welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. I am Pat Odie Marie. I am subbing for Al today. He's dealing with some other business for Ave Maria Radio. And I want to just let you know that EWTN offers a variety of prayers for all of your spiritual needs during Lent and beyond. You can find them at EWTN.com slash pray. Our next guest um, is, he, he wrote a great, uh, this is, is something I struggle with as I think about this stuff and teach with it, so I'm so excited to talk to him about it. It's Philip Campbell. He's a history teacher for Homeschool Connections and the author of many books on Catholic history, most notably the Story of Civilization series from Tan Books. You can learn more about his books and classes on his website, www.philipcampbell.net. Philip resides in Southern Michigan, and we're going to be talking about an article uh, that he wrote called Catholic Guilt is Not a Thing. Welcome, Philip. Hi, I'm glad to be here, Pat. Nice to talk to you. Oh, hey, I love this article. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) first of all, because I usually tell my moral theology students guilt is not a bad thing. Um, (laughs) So, but what I, I, when I looked at the title, you took it in a direction that I wasn't quite ready for. So I thought, ooh, this is good. Um, You talk about um, the idea of individual and collective responsibility. And um, and I just want to tell the the audience. Um, you say you know that a, a society um, can only be as good and wholesome as the people who comprise it. Um, and but you also go on to say, on the other hand, individual virtue is not always sufficient to overcome the hurdles of systematic injustice. Um, I must admit. Philip, I struggle with this concept, and I usually am not very balanced, and I usually fall on the side of the moral individual. So why did you approach it from that stance? Well, I started thinking about, you always hear people making these quips about Catholic guilt when they feel bad about something. Yeah. You know, they'll be like, oh, you know, I was raised Catholic, Catholic guilt, or it's it's a trope in Hollywood. And I started thinking, you know, that's not really a, a thing, but where does, where does this uh, come from? And um, I took the approach I did because in the Catholic tradition, there's this beautiful balance between our individual responsibility to pursue holiness and virtue, but also to project that outwards into society, to build a just society, mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to manifest the Lord's kingdom here in in the world, the the earthly kingdom of Christ, right? Right. And the the traditional Catholic, uh, the Catholic tradition has such a beautiful balance of this, where the two are kind of stressed harmoniously. That's why we have two great commandments, right? To love mm-hmm. the Lord our God above all things, which is referring to our personal relationship with the Lord and how we approach Him, but then also to love our neighbor as ourselves, which is where all our social obligations flow from. Right. And if we have a balanced spirituality then we understand that it's possible for us to sin against God directly, and we can also sin against our neighbor, too, because we have obligations to God individually, and then we have obligations to society, right? Uh-huh. Um, but what I found was that as time goes on throughout history, the more we move into modernity, more and more you find people starting to stress the collective over the individual. Yeah. People start looking at problems structurally, like this really comes from materialism, yeah. This idea that if everybody just has the right education, you know, right. if we have the right programs in place, if we start them reading early enough, then we can eliminate human evil, right. you know? So every problem becomes a structural problem, a, a collectivist problem, a, a social problem, and really people stop caring about 
uh, or I should say they care less about the sorts of sins that our ancestors would have worried about, like, am I a prideful person? Do I look at people with lust? Mm-hmm. Am I, Envious, you, you know, yeah. these things right. that, things that are harder to quantify socially. Yeah. And today, when we talk about these things, we say, like, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to not be as lustful in the way I look at people, or I'm trying to not be as envious. Mm-hmm. People th- people say, well, what good is that? That's just a neurotic focus on your own flaws. Right. That's just, uh, that's your Catholic guilt, right? Why don't you focus on climate change and on solving poverty and on these things that are quantifiable? Right. So m- what I go at in the article is that the, the people mocking the idea of Catholic guilt really reflects moderns' um, shying away from really giving any consideration to individual sins and focusing only on collective ones. Right. So, if, if, Phil, Philip, is is it possible to change an, a social institution without the individuals changing? I don't think it's possible to change an institution without the individuals changing. Um, we've seen this everywhere where, where we will try to, you know, our own country has a history of we go into other countries and we try to give them institutions that we have, right, right, that have seemed to work for us, and then shock, they don't work in the other countries mm-hmm. um, because they have different personal ethics and different social systems and whatnot. So you need personal virtue to make these systems work. But on the other hand, the personal virtue alone isn't going to be enough. I think it's a, I think it's a minimum requirement, obviously, for mm-hmm. something to be functional. But like I said in the article, even the best athlete fails if the game is unfairly stacked against him, right? Right. So there is systemic problems where you look in the structure of things and say this is fundamentally unjust and something beyond just personal virtue is needed. Now, maybe that personal virtue, ideally, that rises up to the degree that it... it bubbles over into right. social change, right? Right. That's the ideal, I think. Yeah, because in my head, I keep coming back to, well, somebody made the rules. Somebody created the system. You know, it, so it, it, I guess that's why I, I so struggle with this. Just, I'm just talking from a personal stance, you know, that yeah. I, I struggle with that concept because it always comes down to the people who are running it. <laughs> you know, it's the people making the rules. It's the people running you know. Yeah, but the system sometimes have an independent existence that's bigger than the individuals that are caught up in them you know there's there's sometimes a a whole wall of bureaucracies and uh and systemic arrangements that are bigger than the individuals now you're right they were designed by people people run them at different points right but they're often beyond the scope of any one person to change and this is why we keep getting into this idea of like every election cycle we go through it if we just get the right people in, then we can we can fix everything. Mm-hmm. And getting the right people in can go a long way. Right. Uh, but it's not going to take you all the way, right? At, at a certain point, you have to look at the structure and say, what do we need to, to change here? Okay. Okay. So I, w- I want to go to um, your idea, because you talk about um, Chesterton and, and that happiness uh, can be achieved with economic on, and political reforms. You're talking about, you know, this is yeah. what modernity tells us, kind of. Do you think part of the issue um, with with this whole thing of guilt is that we don't have a good understanding of happiness? Yeah, I absolutely think that's that's correct. Um, we see guilt as just a uniformly bad thing. Right, <laughs> yeah. Like, if I'm guilty, that something must be wrong. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if, if, if I'm feeling guilty, then something's probably going right. It means that I have a functioning conscience that tells me <laughs> that I have that. done something that, uh, 
that is out of keeping with my principles, you know, right. um, or that is objectively wrong. So that's sort of we have a functional conscience, you know, so there's nothing wrong with, with feeling guilty uh, about something. And like I said in the article, there's nothing wrong with introspecting our conscience, with recognizing our flaws, and with taking responsibility for them. These things are all perfectly healthy. Yes. And that's why when people, when people kind of speak derisively, like, oh, Catholic guilt, like you all are neurotically guilty. Wow. It's like, no, we're not neurotically guilty. Now, we might be neurotic, but not neurotically <laughs> guilty. Right, it doesn't have to do with Catholicism. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah. No, it's just that we don't have, we don't have this grounding in, in virtue and a morality of happiness anymore. Yeah. We're only thinking of things in like a structural collectivist sense. And so these questions relating to virtue, personal happiness, culpability on an individual level, they don't really make sense to culture anymore. And you see more and more, even when somebody uh, commits a very heinous crime, you see more and more interest in trying to, uh, I guess, point out like, well, they had this, you know, they had this upbringing and they went through this and maybe, you know, kind of like almost treating it like in a deterministic way. Right. Um, Like they couldn't help themselves. Yeah. 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 Like they couldn't help themselves. So it's like we're moving further and further from even understanding these basic categories that were so self-evident to our ancestors. Yeah. And and I mean, when we talk about kind of because and I notice this in my classes that I teach, it takes my students a long time to get the concept that happiness is not a feeling. You know, that when we talk about it philosophically Um, and and so it it would make sense, right, that if if you think happiness is just feeling good, um, then I don't want to feel bad, (laughs) you know, and and when I when I think about my flaws, I'm just not all that excited, you know, (laughs) so you can. And and conversely, um, repenting of our sins isn't necessarily a feeling either. I mean, guilt often accompanies contrition, right? Right. Um, if we feel bad, but it doesn't... All, uh, any priest will tell you that people struggle sometimes where they say, I'm repenting of this sin, I'm going to confession, but I don't necessarily feel all these guilty feelings. And the priest will say, you know, the contrition is about res- is about understanding what you did was wrong yeah. and resolving not to do it again. Yeah. If you feel guilty, then you feel guilty, and if you don't, then you don't. But there's really too much emphasis in general on the emotional end of it, whether for good or bad, and you make an excellent point that if we associate happiness with feeling good, then if I don't feel good, if I don't feel happy, then something must be wrong. Yeah. I must have a, a, a problem, right? Right. And that's just simply a very inadequate way to, to look at the human condition. One of the best pieces of advice I ever heard years ago was when somebody told, I don't remember who told me, but just kind of getting it through my head that feelings aren't you know, good or bad. They're just indicators of what's going on, like the temperature. You uh, know? Like, yes. it's, just, it's just what's going on inside. And it's really what you do with the feelings and how you internalize them that makes the difference, not the fact that you're experiencing guilt or experiencing happiness. Right. Because I think part of, of when you do feel guilty about something, it, it is a reflective time for you to see, should I be feeling guilty, right? I mean, is this, yeah. it, have I done something, you know, or is it just something, you know, stupid? I, I didn't mean to do something <laughs> or it wasn't even, I, you know, I, there is no reason for me to feel guilty, you know. Um, but but that takes reflection. And so you have to look at what you're feeling in order to know what is the appropriate response. Exactly. You have to you have to examine yourself what we you know, you have to do an examination of conscience, you know, look at your motives. And this is one of the beautiful things that our faith teaches us is that our motives 
matter, like the reasons we do things matter. Yes. And in the world today, motives almost don't mean anything. Yeah. You know, like, uh, like, it, like if you do a good thing, I mean, Christ is very clear that if you do a objectively good thing, but with a bad motive, mm-hmm. then for you, that's, that's bad. That's not something that you merit from, right? Right. If you're doing good, for example, so that people might speak well of you, like the Pharisees, mm-hmm. that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, I don't think people even take account into that, yeah. uh, take that into account. If, if I'm doing something that looks good, and I'm doing it for egotistical purposes or narcissistic purposes, nobody really cares about that, because like I said, that's too individualized, that's too internalized, and they don't care about virtue um, or the motives. So it's, it's all out of whack. Yeah. And so I guess where this comes down to with the article is, it's not that Catholics are neurotically obsessed with guilt. It's that the world culture at large has kind of fallen off the teeter-totter, <laughs> and we look like we're off balance because they've fallen off. <laughs> yeah, I love that last line. That is one of the best lines I've ever read. The world has fallen off the teeter-totter. That's a great line. And I think yeah. this, you know, this whole idea is certainly... Um, you know, everything in our in our faith makes us kind of look at that and, and take responsibility for what we've did. And and you're mm-hmm. right, the world doesn't push us in that way at all. It gives us excuses. It does. It does. <laughs> uh, well, but, Phil, go ahead. I was just going to say, but we're in Lent, so we're in the perfect season for redressing that. Yes, we are. And I want to thank Phil Campbell for being with us. We were talking about his article, Catholic Guilt is Not a Thing. I'm Pat Odie Murray, setting in for Al Cresta today. The following program is brought to you in part by MyCatholicWill.com. Surveys show that more than half of Americans do not have a will. At MyCatholicWill.com, it takes as little as 15 minutes to write your will and secure a legacy of faith. MyCatholicWill.com is the exclusive online destination for creating a Catholic will. The process of writing a will is simple and now more accessible than ever. MyCatholicWill.com, a legacy of faith for those you love. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Hi, this is Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. Did you know that the Living Will was created by the Euthanasia Society? The USCCB says a better option is a healthcare durable power of attorney, where you choose a healthcare agent who understands your Catholic values. My Life Angels creates this legal document, available anywhere on mobile phones, safeguarding your medical decisions. My Life Angels will donate a percentage of your membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at mylifeangels.com.
Well, we're signing off today. We want to thank Goose Mayrot, Brad Wilcox, and Phil Campbell for being with us this hour. And we also want to let you know that everything from today's show is available at the archive at AveMaria.net. Catholic Answers is up next, and they will be taking your calls. So it's been great. I'm Pat O'Dee Murray, subbing for Al Cresta today, who is away on business, and it's been a pleasure to be here. So I want to thank the Ave Maria people, and um, if you want to listen to me again, Annunciation Radio, I'm there with the show The Virtuous Life. Have a blessed week ahead. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.